If you haven't been with us, we're working our way through 1 Corinthians, which is like a, it's a tough one, it's a rough one, because the, the people in Corinth, the church in Corinth, they <clears throat> were doing things that were probably more in line with the world than what was going on at the time, a very sexually oriented world at that time, both Greek and Roman societies. Um, prostitution was a huge deal and everything else. And last week we got to chapter 5 and we talked about uh, the incest that was happening between the son-in-law and the mother-in-law, or no, yeah, son, the stepson and the, the stepmother, uh, and how the church had pretty much was okay with it. And Paul's like, Man, the Romans aren't even okay with that. What are you guys thinking? Like, there's some standards here, and you guys have totally missed it. And he's really thinking about the church. This letter is to the church, to the believers, and he's kind of concerned about what they're displaying to the non-believers, to the world. What are you displaying? And then we get into chapter 6, and he's talking about legal disputes here. Uh, he's concerned because the, the church in Corinth is rapidly losing their, their testimony. Not only did the unsaved know about the immorality in the assembly, but they were also aware of the, the lawsuits involving members of the church, like church people suing church people. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you... Are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? Paul is literally referring to a future judgment that is to come. And he says that you, the believers, the saints, are going to be judges in that judgment. Like you're going to judge the unrighteous. You're going to even judge the angels. I have no idea what that looks like. Don't ask me to explain that. He's just saying, if you're going to be able to judge spiritual things and God is going to put you in that position to do that, why in the world would you put your own trivial issues in the hands of non-believers? That doesn't even make sense, Paul's saying to them. If they're going to be able to do, uh, judge the future, then surely they can handle their own issues. Verse 4, it says, So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Paul is literally now questioning 
them taking their matters to a secular world than them dealing with it based upon inside the church and dealing with the common beliefs that they all have. Like, literally in this room right here, there's a set of common beliefs that Luke was talking about. But if we go to the outside world, they're not going to judge, assess, and discern based upon our same common beliefs in here. It doesn't even make sense for us to go to a secular court and sue one another. He's literally saying, can you not figure this out on your own? Like, if there's an issue in here, cannot you have arbitrators that are going to make decisions based upon what you believe? Verse 6, it says, Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, in those days, it was most likely a territorial dispute. Whose property was whose property? And the lawsuits weren't necessarily for gaining more money, gaining some kind of financial benefit. The lawsuits back then were more or less being able to say, you're right versus you're wrong. In other words, what was important to them was the public appearance. If you could shame the other person publicly, that was a bigger deal than getting a financial reward. And typically what happened, the rich sued the rich. I mean, if they wanted to make their status higher, why not pick on the ones that were on their same level? But the rich were even able to sue the poor. But the poor were not allowed to sue the rich. That's how messed up this system was that Paul's like saying, you can't figure this thing out. This is about shaming people in public. And what are you saying if you go to brothers inside the church go to a public court and try to shame one another in a secular environment. What is that saying to your testimony? What is that saying about the church? Do you guys realize what you're doing? Verse 7, it says, As it is to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Well, and you say that term, well, I can't get any justice that way. Therefore, I've got to take it through the legal system. You see, the problem is, the gospel is not about entitlement. That's not what it's about. It's not about demanding one's rights. It's really about relinquishing them for the sake of others. There's been, a, in the last few weeks, uh, I don't know if you all were familiar with Lifeway, which was the Southern Baptist uh, Publishing Company in Nashville, Tennessee. But Tom Rayner was 
the president, and then he resigned, and he had a no-compete clause, and it became public because he produced a material and sold it to a different publisher because he quit taking his salary. And so Lifeway decided to sue him. And it became public. And the pastor's like, what are you doing? What are you doing that you would like sue one of your brothers and it's now national news? And Tom's like, hey, I went back to the board and I said, I'll do whatever you want. I'll take the hit. I'll take just, he's like living the scripture out. I, I get it that I'm going to lose in this, but it's okay rather than having to deal with it publicly and for Christianity to be shamed nationally. It was a great move on Tom Rainer's part. But this is literally what he's saying right here. This doesn't even make sense. There's nothing in, is said in this passage about defending the right of others, even the believers who are wronged. Those may be very appropriate processes that he's talking about and priorities, but if the sole purpose of initiating litigation is for my, their own benefit, for my own benefit, and to put someone else down, that doesn't even make sense faith-wise based upon their system. And then you hear this term quite a bit. Well, if that's the case, if I just give up and I lose, if I just let them have their way, doesn't that make me a doormat? <laughs> doesn't that make me a doormat to society? I wouldn't exactly call Jesus, who came to serve, who washed feet, who healed the broken and literally laid down his life for others to be a doormat. You see, Jesus came and he set an example and said, this is what it means to be a child of God, to serve one another. In other words, it's not about you. It's about others. This whole gospel, this good news, Paul's not concerned about how big he can get the church. He's more concerned about what impression are you leaving with this world? Is it about you? Is it about shaming people? Or is it about serving people and loving people? Even to the point of self-sacrifice. <laughs> you see, the church at Corinth was rapidly losing its testimony in the city. Not only did the unsaved know about the immorality in the church, in the assembly, but they were also aware of the lawsuits involving the church members. And then he moves on right there. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Okay, let me break this down because here we go. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? If you look at different translations, the word unrighteous Unrighteous, as some translations use, evildoers. 
Some use wicked, some use unjust, some use those who do wrong. The issue there is Paul uses this word as a noun, not a verb, but a noun, describing what someone is. There are those who make a profession of faith. You know what a profession of faith is. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for me. And I want him to be the Lord of my life. Yet they continue to live their life for years, perhaps their entire life. Not struggling against sin, not making spiritual progress and growing in holiness, but having lapses. And at times even serious lapses. Uh, maybe just a period of backsliding. There's, there's those people but there are others that are seemingly, they make this profession of faith, but there's no change in their behavior. There's no transformation. There's those that believe and struggle with sin, which we all in this room do. We, as Luke was saying, we all struggle with it. And then there's those that make a profession of faith, and it's like, yeah, it doesn't really affect them. When Paul's using this word right here as a noun, not a verb, he's referring it to uh, one action or series of actions. But he's using a noun, he's saying this is who they are. This is what they do on a natural basis. It's this term right here, listen to this, it's this term right here that defines their life. When he's saying they're unrighteous, they're wicked, they're evil. This is what they are known for because this is what they do. I get it that in this room we're believers and sometimes we do evil things, but that's not our nature. That's not who we are. Sometimes we walk in our flesh rather than our spirit at that time, which is what Luke was saying. Have you ever thought about your own personal lifestyle and how it defines you? <laughs> how the world judges you? Like literally, if I toss names out to you right now, you're, there's going to be something that pops up that defines them. If I say Bill Gates, he's defined by you. If I say Mel Gibson... Some of you went one direction, some of you went another direction. Ellen. Just a simple name, Ellen. Defined. Amy Coney Barrett. Defined. Just this week, you define her as a mother of seven, Catholic from Notre Dame, Indiana. Right? LeBron James. Defined. Some of you may see him as a champion. Some of them may see him as a whiner. Peyton Manning. Is he a quarterback or is he a commercial maker? King David. Hmm. Hmm. Now we're hitting home. Job. 
He's defined. Rusty Kennedy. Hmm, I'm curious there. <laughs> what defines you? This is literally what he's saying when he's calling them evil. He's calling them unrighteous. What's their nature? What do they, their behavior defines them. He says, do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. He's talking about the unrighteous. He's talking about those who practice these things on a regular basis. I'm not the judge. Don't ask me to take that any further. I'm not the dude in charge. This is the characteristics of lifestyle. Verses 9 through 11 right here, in short, teach that the consistently wicked are not Christians. Those who practice these behaviors and do these things, they're not Christian. So, what do we do? We need to love people trapped in these lifestyles, but I cannot celebrate it, nor can I justify it. I can't. This is, this is what the Word of God says. We cannot say it's inconsistent with God's Word or with His desires for humanity. It's all throughout Scripture. And you're sitting there picking out one issue. I mean, he just listed a whole bunch of things. It's like, we're talking about the unrighteous. We're talking about those that don't believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And much of this is because for the first time in human history, our, our generation has turned sexual expression into a right rather than a privilege. I believe when God created Adam and Eve, he created sex as a privilege for them. Not as a right. And most of these issues that Paul's listing right here, they really stem out of pride. What am I going to get out of it? What's in it for me? Wanting more than they've been given. The theme of simply wanting what I want, when I want it, and how I want it, without thought for others, without any sense of delayed gratification, in flagrant violation of God's laws and principles. That's, that's really what it is. God says, this is what I believe, this is the way I set up the world, this is the way I set up creation. You're free to do what you want to do, but if you want it to work properly, this makes sense. This makes sense. Verse 11 says, and some of you used to be like this. That you had an old stone heart 
And once you believed, once you came to this transformation, he put a new heart in you and made you a new creation. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. You realize what Paul is doing right here. He's like, here's the unrighteous and here's what this looks like to be unrighteous. But you, your identity is that of Jesus Christ. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, you are sanctified means to be set apart. You are set apart from them. Yet if you continue to do what they do, then you're confusing a lot of people. And the testimony that's out there doesn't even make sense to them. You've been set apart. This is who you are. I made you a new creation holy, righteous, and redeemed, now learn to walk in that. <laughs> and get to verse 12, it says this, as we talked about this a little bit last week, in quotations, everything is permissible for me. Yes, you're free. But then he qualifies it. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Look, I'm saying this to you out here. You're free to do whatever you want. The pastor just said that. The preacher just said that. You're free to do whatever you want. But let me tell you right now, not everything is going to benefit you. It's like you said in... This church is not normal. This place is not normal. We're going to tell you, you can go do whatever you want. And there's grace for that. The truth of the matter is, if you learn your identity, what he talked about in verse 11, you're not going to want to do those things that are unrighteous. You're going to want to do the things that are righteous if you figure out who you are. It's where the whole, this is where the whole grace message gets distorted. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. This is where it gets distorted. Paul's message was one that was clear, that was cleared from following the Mosaic Law. He's like, you know, God came along and he gave the Ten Commandments. God came along and he gave Leviticus 613 laws, spiritual laws, but he gave those to the Jews. I'm assuming that you're not Jewish in here. So the truth of the matter is, he didn't even give the Ten Commandments to you. But he gave the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments, the law, the Mosaic law, is used as a tutor. It helped people to see that they did things wrong in the eyes of God, and that they needed a way back, so they needed a Savior. It was a tutor for them. It allowed them to see that. Like, you can make a list of sins and wrongdoings, which we've already just mentioned here in the Scripture, and identify all the people that have sinned. That would be everybody. And as Gentiles... Again, you're never placed under God's law, even though we can read about them. I read about them, I know them, I have them memorized. But now, as believers, 
we've been transformed into this new creation. He removed our old stone heart, replaced it with a new heart, and guess what he did? He replaced my old dead spirit that I was born with because I came from the seed of Adam, and he replaced it with a new living spirit in me. The spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. I have a holy living God in me. I don't need a list to tell me of the things that I'm doing wrong because there's a God inside of me that made this list and I know what he loves. I know what he wants for my life. He wants the best for my life. And he tells me on a regular basis. And he says, Rusty, you tried to live the law. <laughs> you tried to live the law for a long time. That didn't go so well for you. So now if you just let me do this for you, I'll do it for you. Man, I'm, I'm 56. And I'm still trying to live, learn how to live out of my new heart. I'm still learning. I'm still learning how to trust. I'm learning how to trust still. How to rest. How to figure this thing out. Lord, please, please don't let this be me teaching today. You have that same spirit in you that wants to do things for you, just as Luke was talking about. He guides you. He matures you. He gives you faith. He produces fruit in you, that fruit being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He does all that. You don't do that. Man, if it's up to you, you've already blown it. Thank goodness he's there, and he will do that through you. And look, you're no longer defined by a list of sins. That doesn't define you. That's not who you are. You are, let's be honest, you're defined by your walk. You're defined by your walk. What's your walk? Well, your walk is what you were talking about. I, I either going to walk by the Spirit, let Him do it for me, or I'm going to walk according to my flesh. Occasionally, sometimes, I'm going to walk according to my flesh, which is selfish, which is me doing it myself, which is me looking out for myself. And that's probably going to cause some bumps in the road. But I always have two choices. But my life is based upon how I walk, not based upon a list of sins. <laughs> for the... For the unbelievers, they got that list of sins. For you and me, there's no more list of sins. It's just you're going to walk according to the flesh, you're going to walk according to the Spirit. That's it. Pretty simple. Makes it simple. Yeah. Paul says, you're free. You're free. You can do that. You can do whatever you want. But if you choose to walk by your flesh, it's probably not going to benefit you. 
As Christians, we really have to ask ourselves, will this enslave me? Is this activity really profitable for my spiritual life? Is it worth it? In verse 13, he says, Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see, back in those days, what Paul was dealing with there in the Greek and Roman culture was this this thought of dualism. That the body was evil, but the soul was good. And therefore, whatever you did in the body, it didn't really matter. Because what mattered was the soul. And so they would separate the two. They would separate the two and they would justify being able to do what they do and say, yeah, it doesn't really matter because that's the body and it's evil. I have a body and this body is neutral. It's a tent. It's a house that holds my soul spirit. I, I get it. It's not good or evil, my body. It's neutral. And therefore, what they did with the body really didn't matter to them. They treated uh, sex as an appetite to be satisfied and really not as a gift to be cherished and used carefully. Part of that was because of the society that they were in and what they were being taught. You see, sensuality is to sex what gluttony is to eating. Both are sinful, and both have disastrous consequences. He's, he's not picking any one sin right here. He's just saying, look, they all have consequences. Just because we have Certain normal desires given by God at creation does not mean that we must give in to them and always satisfy them. All things are profitable, but not all things are beneficial. Sex outside of marriage, where Paul's going right here, is destructive. While sex in marriage can be very creative and beautiful. It's, it's like a, a bank. It, if you go in and rob a bank and you take something out that's not yours, it has logical consequences to it. But if you take money into the bank, and most of the times invest it, you get something good out of it is literally what he's saying. Verse 14, it says, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that lives in us. Same power that raised Jesus from the dead, same power in us. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? So should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Like, there's this holy living God inside of me and I'm going to go with a prostitute, and that means I'm taking God with me. He says, absolutely not. In those days, 
prostitution was taken for granted by most in the Greek and Roman world. And it was very much with a double standard. The men were allowed to do it, but the women were not. Paul once again declares that this license to sin, which grace people get labeled with all the time, is not what he is teaching. He says, absolutely not. Verse 16, it says, Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture, he says, for her, because it's only the men that are doing it. For scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. When a man and a woman join their bodies, the entire personality is involved. At least that's the way it's intended to be. If it's a transaction, I don't believe that's what God intended it to be. I mean, there is absolutely emotion involved in it. There's thought that's involved in it. There's physicality that's involved into it. It's like the personality of the two come together as one. And there's a much deeper experience of oneness that brings it into this deep and lasting consequences. It's a good thing. God gave it to us as a gift, and it is a privilege. In verse 18, it says, Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Now, I don't know if I, you try to define that sins that like you can obviously get drunk, you can do all sorts of things to your own body. I I get that, but there is no there is no sin, no 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 such thing right here where two people are involved. Two people are involved. Paul, Paul warned that sexual sin is the most serious sin that people can commit against the body for, it involves the whole person. Not just the physical thing, but the whole personality. Sex is not just part of the body. Being male and female involves the total person. Therefore, a sexual experience affects the total personality. Non-Christian psychologists and sociologists have demonstrated that the more sexual partners a person has, the harder it becomes to form and sustain any kind of human intimacy, even should one later choose to. God gave us sex as a gift inside of marriage for male and female. I said it. It's only because that's what the scripture teaches. And inside of that, inside of that, there is intimacy, intimacy that is powerful. He says in verse 19, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have from God, you're not your own. For you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. You know, in a culture of consumerism and entitlement, where we're bombarded with messages daily telling us that we deserve X, we need to treat ourselves to Y. We need to remind ourselves that from God's perspective, most of those statements are false. I get into it. Chapter 7, he says, Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. <laughs> Let me explain this real quick. In the light of the sexual culture that they were living in that dominated the Greek and the Roman worlds there during this time, there was a movement for a pro-celibacy marriage. In other words, let's make this a spiritual marriage, and sex is so confusing out there right now, we're just not going to have sex. Hmm. Seems like there's an important element that's missing there. Marriages were spiritually based, and they did away with sex because they wanted to make it more holy. There was a concern also that what Paul was teaching, that all men and women should not have sexual relations. <laughs> he's literally wanting to clarify what he said here. He's like, he's talking about outside of a marriage. Verse 2, it says, But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Sexual immorality was so rampant and available, he said, there's a way to avoid it. Let me tell you how you avoid the sexual immorality of this world. Have sex with your spouse. That's what he said. If sex or even thoughts about sex outside of your marriage is an issue, Paul's solution, have sex with your spouse. Hmm, makes sense. Pastor is telling you to have sex with your spouse. A husband, oh here we go. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. Marital duty. For both the husband and the wife. This is interesting because usually it was more about the men and you would just leave the women out, but Paul's like saying, hey, the women are important here too. It's not just you guys that are going to get it. It's the women that should get it as well. It is both of their duties to fulfill their sexual desires. What, what if only one of them has the need? Paul says, take care of it for them. Otherwise, they're going to look elsewhere. There's plenty of opportunities, and there's going to be trouble. He says, likewise means, he says, likewise means, it's not a one-way transaction. It's not just about the one person. It's about, being, it's about pleasing the other, seeking to please each other. Does this seem 
weird talking about this. No, it's just it's what God intended in a marriage relationship. It's a huge part of a marriage relationship. It's an important part to have sex with your spouse because it creates this intimacy that you don't have with anyone else. This oneness becoming one flesh. Verse 4, it says, A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. That sounds a little weird. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Still sounds a little weird. Paul's not saying you can rape the other person. That's not what he's saying at all. Paul's talking about the commitment that was made at marriage. When you became one flesh, you made a commitment that's what mine is yours and what's yours is mine. And they share the rights of each other's body together. You are one with each other. He says, Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. If you want to take time to be abstinent from sex for a while and you agree upon it, do it, you know, make sure you communicate about it, be healthy about it, then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self control. <laughs> you want a good marriage? Have sex often is what Paul's saying. I, I, I get it. I have conversations with you all the time. Typically in a marriage relationship, one of you wants it more than the other. And it's not necessarily the males. Trust me. What he's saying there is you're only asking for trouble if you refuse to have sex with your spouse. It can't be any more clear than this right here. He says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I'm pleading with you, have sex with your spouse. I'm not commanding you to. It's not the law. I'm not demanding it. This is like a parent pleading with their child. You want to have a good marriage? You want to have a great relationship? Please one another, sexually. Verse 7, I wish that all people were as I am. Paul, at this point in his life, we really don't know if Paul was married or what happened. If he's, But at this point, he's practicing celibacy. Paul is currently sing, single when he's writing this. We don't know if his wife died or if he wasn't married or what. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. Like he considered celibacy, his celibacy, a gift from God. Our desires are different. Because we're created different. And he's literally saying that. If you choose to be single, or if singleness is your situation right now, he's like, be okay with that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. When he says, as I am, again, we don't know if he's talking about celibacy or if he's talking about being a widower. But it's an encouragement to them to remain single. It's okay. It's okay. 
in the last verse, but if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Like, if this is going to be an issue with you, you probably ought to get married. If sex is going to control your life, you probably ought to marry someone of the opposite sex and live as God intended you to live. I don't think Paul could be any more direct than he was. Like, literally, he made one statement in a previous letter and there was all sorts of questions. So he writes this second letter and he goes, let me clarify with you. Let me get this straight. This is what God intended a marriage to look like. And again, it has to do with the testimony of how the world sees you. That if you're not getting sex from your spouse and you're having to go out and get it from a prostitute, what's that saying about the gospel? What's that saying? This is literally all the things that he's tackling as they're asking him questions. They're the ones that ask, clarify this, Paul. Clarify what you're saying. Clarify what you're teaching. He clarified it. Clarified it. Father, uh, I know there's all sorts of situations in this room right here today. There are those that are single. We have widowers and widows. We have marriages that are excelling. We have marriages that are struggling and I pray just as Luke spoke here earlier that the spirit in you would manage our behavior don't let it be us that manages our behavior but let it be you that manages our behavior It's the only way that's going to work. So I'm going to trust you in my life. I'm going to trust you in my friends' lives here today that you would just have your way with us. That you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would give us strength. And I thank you for uh, your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.